Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Welcome uh, to this uh, podcast. I've got Nigel Watson with me. If you'd like to introduce yourself, Nigel. Yeah, hello, Michelle. Uh, my name is Nigel Watson. I'm the clinical lead for the COVID vaccination programme in Hampshire and Isle of Wight. I'm also uh, one of the members of the Southeast Regional Clinical Reference Group for the programme and the National Clinical Reference Group. Um, and I should have introduced myself. I'm Michelle Lombardi. I'm one of the directors of primary care. So we've had a number of uh, queries coming into the office around COVID and the COVID vaccination programme. And we thought we'd have a chat with Nigel to discuss some of the information that's now becoming available, particularly around the phase three enhanced service. So I'm going to hand over to Nigel to talk through uh, some of the updates that we've got around this. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. Um, I think what we'll do is have a bit of a discussion, which might make it easier for people to listen to rather than uh, listening to me drone on for too long. <laughs> so it is worth remembering that COVID was only first reported on the 17th of November 2019. So it seems that we've lived with COVID for quite a long time. But relatively speaking, this is a new virus that we're learning more about every day. And currently worldwide, over 180 million people have been infected and over 4 million people have sadly lost their lives. And when you look around various countries, um, you know, sadly in the UK, 128,000 have died within 28 days of catching COVID. But you look at some other countries like the USA, India, Brazil and Mexico, they've had significantly more deaths than we've had. So um, on the slide, if you're looking at the slide deck, the information is there. Um, on the next slide I've, I've shown here, it just, just gives you an indication of what has happened over the last 18 months, really. So, you know, we're getting um, significant increases in the number of people infected. We dropped down to a few thousand a day, and it's now up to over 40,000 people testing positive a day. But fortunately, the number of deaths on a daily basis has dropped significantly. But if you look at um, the graph we've got here, then what you can see is that we had the sort of early peak um, in the first part of last year, the sort of what we called wave one. Um, and it was probably higher than that, but we weren't doing the amount of testing that we are now. We then went into um, wave two to the autumn and over Christmas, where we were testing about uh, positive about 60,000 people a day. It then dropped off and we're now seeing that surge. And it's important to then look at that in the context of the vaccination programme, where we've um, given a first vaccine to nearly 90% of those in the cohorts one to nine, so that the most at risk, 99% of deaths occur in this cohort. So these are people aged over 50 and people with medical conditions uh, that make them more at risk and health and social care workers. And um, we've nearly hit um, in that group, it's nearly 90% have had second vaccines. If you go to the adult population, locally, we're on about 90% have had first and 66% have had second vaccines. And the vaccine program is why when we look at the latest peak, we are getting, we're seeing people infected, but the hospitalization rate and the death rate is remaining relatively low, although I'll go on a bit more uh, shortly, which shows it is rising. Um, it is worth also looking at COVID is uh, more common 
in places where there's social deprivation, in people that smoke, people who have poor diet. And they are the same risk factors we see in um, cancer-related deaths and also in cardiovascular disease. And we've had 128,000 deaths, as I said, uh, following COVID infection. We have about 160,000 deaths a year from cancer and about the same from cardiovascular disease. So these three diseases have quite a lot of similarity. If we look at the numbers of patients in hospital, and I um, have pushed back a number of times to say the hospitalization rate isn't a good barometer of uh, the workload, particularly in general practice, because I recognize that practices are working extremely hard and COVID is putting a massive pressure on not only the way you organize care, but in the way you have to deliver care. And what we're seeing across the country, we've seen uh, large increases in not only the rate, but beginning to see hospitalization rate, particularly in the north of the country and in London. And in quite a lot of those areas, it's occurring in the non-vaccinated patients. So there's a real incentive to, to not miss out those in the older age group, you know, the eight to 10% who haven't been vaccinated yet, who would like to see them uh, vaccinated and protected. If we look sort of more locally, and this focuses, uh, the, I, I've got a map um, here, which just shows across the country where the highest rates are, which are still in the North and the Midlands, and the lowest rates are sort of in the Southeast and uh, parts of the Southwest, including our part of Wessex. So, you know, when you look at the England average, as it is um, at the beginning of this week, being the around the 12th of July, the England average is about 318 per 100,000, which is doubling about every week. The Isle of Wight remains quite low at 72, but as we go across Hampshire and into Dorset and into Bath, Swindon and Wiltshire, those numbers are increasing. At the moment, the highest rate is in South Tyneside, which is about uh, 1,308 per 100,000, which is uh, one of the highest rates we've seen. So in summary, you know, what we're looking at is phase one was about, of the vaccine programme was about saving lives. So we were looking at care homes, health and social care workers, the 70 plus age group and the clinically extremely vulnerable. And this is cohorts basically one to four where 88% of the deaths occurred. When you look at the um, other people within that um, saving lives group, they were the 50 to 69 and those aged 16 to 49 who had underlying health conditions. And this accounted for about another 11%. So 99% of the deaths early on in the COVID pandemic were recorded in this group. We then moved on to what was looked at trying to reduce transmission. So we're vaccinating people aged 18 to 49, these are cohorts 10 to 12. And with this group, what we're trying to do is reduce the risk of serious infection, hospitalization and death but also reduce the risk of transmission to other um, groups and also reduce the risk of long COVID. And particularly challenging is to try and get to the uh, younger age group who don't necessarily see COVID vaccination as important to them because uh, they perceive this COVID infection as being a bit like flu and mainly affects older people. And then we move to what's now being called phase three or boosting immunity. So this is the winter booster program. So as we all know, the next week, uh, the 19th, um, if you're listening to this after the 19th, um, Freedom Day, um, where 
there is this perception that we can um, start partying again, going to events and um, COVID is less of an issue. Um, my view is that it is not, uh, this is a point in time where we're trying to open up some of the social uh, gatherings, but we need to remain vigilant because we can see that the levels of COVID vaccination are increasing significantly. So we do need to um, retain some of that um, face, space and hands, particularly washing hands has reduced transmission quite significantly. And I'd like to see that continue for a long period of time, if not for good. The covering face in inside um, places helps reduce the spread and actually giving people a bit of distance also will do that. So the BMA have produced some really helpful posters which uh, that the LMC has distributed. But clearly the messaging here is, you know, if you're gonna be outside, not wearing a mask is probably okay. Um, particularly if you're not in close proximity to people. If you're gonna be indoors anywhere, it is worth wearing a mask to try and protect other people that you might be uh, associated with. Uh, but if you're gonna go into a supermarket and you're fit and well, that is completely different to if you're going into a surgery or a hospital where you're potentially ill. So the um, infection protect, pr protection and control measures still remain in place that if you're going into a hospital or general practice, you should wear face masks, you should keep social distancing and um, gelling and washing your hands still remain a high priority. Sorry, have you got any questions about that, Michelle? I have, I was just gonna chip in there. Um, so uh, the Wessex, Wessex LMCs have sent out uh, our team newsletter today and we have included the poster that you've got on the right-hand side of, your, of the screen here from the BMA, which you can put up into your up into your um, waiting areas, reception, etc., or onto your website. We've also included some messages for patients as well that you may want to send to them, and just highlighting the fact, as Nigel has said, that actually from a practice perspective, there's no change. Infection control needs to continue as you have been doing previously. The other um, question that we are getting in quite a lot is around isolation. So um, we know the rules are changing on the 16th of August that if you've had if you've had two vaccines or double vaccinated, then you no longer need to self-isolate. The problem is obviously there's been lots of new um, news in the media around the track and trace with lots of notifications coming out. And this is actually crippling practice staff uh, because they're having to self-isolate. And I just wondered if there was any um, news or guidance within some of your national roles around whether this will be brought forward for general practice, as opposed to it being the 16th, whether it be sooner, whether they, people can, don't need to self-isolate. Yeah, it's you're absolutely right, Michelle. It's causing a real problem um, in both the health service and in the care sector, where you know, we would normally expect a absence rate of about 4% and it's going up beyond 15% in many organisations. And as we open up um, and socialise more, the risk is in those gatherings that more people end up self-isolating. So currently, as you say, the proposal is that um, if, you're, if you have had two vaccines, you won't need to self-isolate after uh, the date you've given in August. There is quite a lot of lobbying going on that the self-isolation for health and social care work staff is brought forward to now so that anybody that's had two vaccines does not need to self-isolate because there is a real impact on 
workforce and certainly some surgeries uh, may find they've got uh, haven't got enough staff to run a service let alone a safe service so at the moment there's no announcement to bring that forward but um, many people have uh, made exactly the same point as you're doing Michelle um, and you know we'll wait and see what happens with that. So watch this space and if we hear anything we'll share that with practices. Yeah so let's let's just move on then a bit so um, we talk about the UK variant the Indian variant or whatever we're now naming these by the Greek alphabet. So the alpha variant was also called the Kent or UK variant, and that was dominant in the UK earlier on this year. We then had uh, a small amount of the beta variant, also called the South African variant, which was more virulent, but only in uh, a few places, and there was surge testing done there. There's also one called a gamma variant, which is also the Brazilian variant, which is quite prominent in South America. The one that we see most of at the moment is the Delta variant, which was called the Indian variant. And this accounts for about 90% of all UK infections and 60% more transmissible than uh, the old UK variant or Alpha variant. And it's probably important to note that um, as these variants emerge, uh, we do more genetic sequencing than most countries. So we're well aware of the incidence of various variants locally. And these are regularly tested against the current vaccines and the current vaccines do cover all these variants. The one that's being monitored by the WHO at the moment is called the Lambda variant, which is very prevalent in South America, particularly in Peru, it's the dominant variant. And again, it's thought to be more contagious and uh, spread more easily. So again, there's a balance between identifying which variants are around, also uh, the effectiveness of the vaccines. Um, just to put some of this into context, so, you know, there, there is a target by the end of next week, um, with the 19th being, you know, what, what has been uh, deemed to be um, Freedom Day. Well, the government is looking to get 90% of adults having their first and 66% having had their seconds. And the latest data we have, which is Hampshire data, which I have uh, good access to, but it's pretty similar across Dorset and Wiltshire. We've done really well in terms of, if you look at cohorts one to nine, of you know 93% having their, in, in that cohort, having their first, and of those, 96% have had their second. As you go down the cohorts, we're seeing a bit of reluctance in the 30 to 50 year olds who are having a second dose, particularly of AstraZeneca. And that's a mixture of people who have other important things in their lives and don't give this a high enough priority. And there is a, uh, an amount of people who are concerned about the AstraZeneca vaccine um, and therefore are declining a second dose uh, because of their concerns. And I'll talk a bit about that later. Um, but if you look at the 18 to 29 year olds, again, uh, we are progressing well, but there are some concerns in uh, this age group. We are concerned because um, this age group don't seem to see COVID as being that serious an infection. There are concerns that are um, unfounded, but spread on social media about fertility, that it affects your fertility, and there is no evidence that it does. Um, we also know that um, in that age group, some of them uh, are saying they will be vaccinated, but you know, not quite yet because they're busy doing things and perhaps later. So there are different ways we're trying to communicate, different ways we're trying to deliver the vaccine depending on 
the age, the communities that people are in. It is worth knowing that, you know, in the UK, we've given 38 million first doses, 28 million second doses, and general practice has been absolutely critical. To start with, we were dealing, uh, delivering 70% of this. It's now fallen to about 63%. And what we can see, which probably when you stand back and think about it, is not surprising. The older patients have greater loyalty to their practice and want to go there. The younger, more mobile, are happy to book in via their app or via um, you know, the national booking service, which they can do online. So we are um, putting more effort into vaccinating the younger people through the large vaccination centres. Just a couple of things that are causing problems at the moment. One is um, there is um, some patients who are contacting practices who are worried about the AstraZeneca vaccine that was manufactured in India. So just to be really clear, what is manufactured in this country in terms of the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine is exactly the same as the vaccine that's manufactured in India um, under the same conditions, under exactly the same effectiveness, uh, and it has been approved by the MHRA, and it's transported from India back to the UK and used. So um, it is not the Covishield vaccine, as some people seem to think, and it is nothing that we can do as um, practices or you can do as practices to sort this out. It needs to be sorted out at government level. And I met with the local MPs last night and talked to them about this. So other countries need to recognize that this is an approved vaccine and it is exactly the same as other people are offering. So we should not be giving people a new course of Pfizer or anything else. We need to enable people to travel to get this vaccine um, approved by various countries. I see from the news recently that a couple were refused entry into Malta, um, but after some uh, national discussions, I think intergovernmental, then people were allowed in. So hopefully this will be sorted out. Sorry, um, just quickly, just, oh, yeah, go on, just, Michelle, sorry. Um, uh, cut in there. We're getting quite a lot of queries from practices around um, exemption letters to do with face masks and flying. Um, one was around PCR tests because they didn't want their child to have a PCR test for medical reasons and they needed a letter for the airline. So is there any guidance around this? I think then that's yeah. not a contractual requirement for practices to provide it. No, you, you, and, and I think largely we shouldn't be providing it because um, they're largely not doing PCR tests on young children. Um, we shouldn't be doing face mask exemptions. I think that's for the airlines and the individuals to work out what those risks are. Um, so, and we don't need to give letters um, to people uh, to confirm their COVID vaccination. They can phone 119 and get a printout or they can do it on their NHS app. So I absolutely uh, agree with, I think where you're coming from, Michelle, which is this is down to the individual um, to sort this out and if they're traveling with whoever their travel operator are, it's not something for uh, practices to sort out. Brilliant, thanks Nigel. Um, there, are, there are a lot of myths about the vaccine, so you know that we're injecting something that makes people magnetic or that there is a chip in it where the government can track what we're doing. I mean you know you, you think this is so ridiculous it couldn't possibly be true but um, it is amazing on social media how people will believe what they're told on that, but won't believe uh, what is put out by the NHS or by government. So just a few of the things which um, we're being asked repeatedly is, um, if you've had COVID, do you need to be vaccinated? And the answer is yes, you do. Um, 
that the natural immunity is not lifelong when you catch COVID. So, you know, we do leave a four week gap to stop any major side effects. Um, people have said that, which they do with flu vaccine, oh, I caught COVID off the vaccine. Uh, at the moment, you can't catch COVID because none of them are live vaccines. And um, the side effects are really bad. Well, they're generally fairly mild. They can knock people out for a day or two, but I'm sure most people on here have either got friends who've had long COVID or have patients with long COVID. Having the COVID vaccine is much better than having COVID. What we do know is that the reactivity of the AstraZeneca is, is less on the second dose, but more for Pfizer. So, you know, when you're giving the second dose of Pfizer, you might get, and it's not always the case, you might get uh, more side effects than the first dose and the same uh, with AstraZeneca being slightly less after the second dose. Um, the other thing which has come to light are, um, I'll talk a bit about the thrombotic episodes with AstraZeneca first, which is, as I'm sure everybody knows and has read, that this happens with AstraZeneca and the Janssen, Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is this vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia. And this is rare. It occurs in about one in 100,000, but slightly more common in people under the age of 40. Um, and after a second dose, a Canadian study suggested it occurred about one in 600,000. So at the height of COVID, this is certainly significantly less than the risk of thrombosis from COVID. So the AstraZeneca vaccine is still deemed to be safe and effective, but we're now not giving it to people under 40 unless there's a clinical reason such as they have a severe allergic reaction to Pfizer. So we're largely using Pfizer in the younger age group. Um, so when we look at um, the Pfizer, there have been a number, about 300 cases of myocarditis in young people. Um, we've seen it in the UK and it's been reported in America as well. This is generally in younger men and 10 to 14 days after a second dose. And they present with shortness of breath, um, some chest pain, um, eight, uh, some sort of tachycardia normally. It is normally mild and self-limiting and with the, the advice is to give the, the usual advice for this sort of thing, but people are suggested that they uh, contact their clinician if they do get symptoms following this. So when, uh, certainly what I've been doing uh, in the last week or two when I've been vaccinating is go through the usual side effects, um, you know, the headaches, the sore arm, the fever, the flu-like illness, the tiredness and aching which normally last 24 to 48 hours and then the pass off but if you get any more unusual symptoms such as shortness of breath or chest pain then seek medical advice so people should be aware without alarming them so um, there have been a small number of deaths with this but they've been in older people who've got significant underlying medical conditions so the overwhelming belief is that this is a mild um, inflammation that mainly affects young men and normally after the second dose. And, you know, when we're looking at the risks and benefits, um, you know, the risk of uh, the thrombosis um, is about the same risk of dying if you drive 240 miles. The risk of the pericarditis, um, you know, if you look at the risk of dying in a road traffic accident versus the risk of uh, any of these complications, it, it, it brings it into perspective. 
Okay, any questions about that, Michelle, before we go on to the autumn booster? Um, you did want to ask me something, I think, about second doses. Yes, I've got a few questions on second doses. Before I go on to that, there was just a question, uh, it just occurred to me, around the children and how, yeah. the, the dose, how the vaccines are going to work. So I know that the phase, we're just going to come on to phase three, um, enhanced service specification, but clearly children sit outside of that. And I just wondered if there was any more update uh, around the plans for children in the autumn. Yeah, so it's being looked at about whether we should vaccinate children from 12 upwards. And um, that decision has sort of been paused at the moment because the priority is to do those who are most at risk. And I think the, the um, information is being considered by the Joint Committee. In the USA and Canada, they are now vaccinating the 12 to 18 year olds. So that will give us more data that we can look at. And I think for children, certainly it's worth vaccinating them to protect them from long COVID and pr pr protect transmission of the virus to other people, particularly in school groups where, you know, we've seen significant absences over the last few months. That's got to be balanced against the risk to the individual. And that's what's being considered at the moment. So children may well be vaccinated, but if so, that's probably going to be after Christmas. It's not going to be anywhere in the near future. Um, JCVI might get evidence which um, changes that um, but at the moment what they've done is issued an interim statement which is they're considering the evidence but no decision has been made at the moment although Pfizer has been approved for use in people aged 12 and above so if we if we are going to do it we we will have the vaccine to do that okay so I think you said after Christmas for, for possibly yeah. okay um so I did have some questions around second doses so I know pre uh, practices are getting quite a lot of patients ask if they can have their second dose before the eight weeks and I wondered if you've got some guidance that you could share with practices yeah. on, on what they need to do around that. So as everybody remembers we started off at four weeks uh, with Pfizer and then we went to 12 weeks and the reason for that was the increasing levels of COVID infection. One dose of Pfizer gives you about 60% protection, a second dose takes it up to about 95%. So a decision was made to vaccinate as many people as possible with a first dose before we moved on to second doses. And the same thing happened with AstraZeneca. Uh, as vaccine supply became more plentiful, and again, we went into the sort of second phase and we saw increasing numbers of people infected, the decision was to bring that gap down to eight weeks um, because you, you compromise a bit of efficacy but you benefit by earlier levels of immunity. So particularly what was happening in the north of the country. So at the moment, the uh, guidance is to have an eight week gap between the first and the second dose, unless there are particularly, particular um, scenarios or clinical conditions where you would authorize an early dose. And this is particularly people who are immunocompromised or there is a good clinical reason to do it. So, um, it is not a good reason for people to come forward and say, I, I would like an early second dose, although we know um, in certain parts of the country, they've been giving them quite freely. Um, particularly, we've had a number of patients who've been to London, uh, or we've probably got relatives who live in London who've been called in at four weeks to have their vaccination. So if we go to the sort of vaccination program, rule number one is don't waste vaccine. 
So the advice we're giving is if at the end of the day, you're going to throw Pfizer away, then please don't. The alternative is call people in who are as near to eight weeks as possible. Um, if you have people come in and say, I would just like my vaccine earlier, then the current advice is you, you should wait for eight weeks because it's more effective and we don't have um, the vaccine that we can do everybody at four weeks at the moment. The exception to that is on compassionate grounds. If somebody is going to travel abroad because they've got a really sick or dying relative, then it's not unreasonable to do it under eight weeks, authorised by a clinician and recorded the reason why. It is not considered a good reason just because you want to go on holiday and travel, so you need an early second dose. Um, people need to organise their travel plan so that they do that once they've been fully vaccinated, if that's what is the requirement. Now, as we can see the alarming rise in COVID infections at the moment doubling every week, the question is being asked, and it was in the newspapers at the weekend, was that the um, gap was going to be reduced to four weeks. We do have a better supply of Pfizer. We have got more than enough AstraZeneca, although we're using that less. But at the moment, that reduction to four weeks has not been nationally mandated. It may well be being considered, but we wait for that um, decision to be made nationally. So if practice have got patients contacting them for a letter to say that they need a clinician to make the decision to have their vaccines, uh, their second doses early, what advice would that be? Would they, would they be referred back to the vaccination site? How would they manage that? I mean, it, it probably is a, um, a discussion between their GP and themselves, but also there is obviously this conflict between people turning up at a vaccination centre um, certainly if they go to the large vaccination centres, often they're working under the national protocol and don't have prescribers, so they wouldn't be able to do it under eight weeks. They have to stick to that. Um, and I think, you know, this should be on an exceptional basis rather than a regular basis. So, you know, I, I, I work in a vaccination centre and I, at the weekend, was vaccinating in Southampton at the large pop-up, which was more than a pop-up. It was a sort of mass centre and I did vaccinate a small number of people who were under eight weeks for clinical reasons, but it has to be on that basis. Is there a time frame? So you're saying as close to eight weeks as possible. Is there any time frame? So would seven weeks be acceptable? Or would you, or is there no, you just say as close to eight weeks as possible? There is a time frame. I, I think if it's between seven and eight weeks, then that's not unreasonable if, if you're going to waste vaccine. Um, you, you should not do it under four weeks. If you do it under four, well, certainly the advice is if you have it within 21 days of uh, the first vaccine, then it's deemed to be ineffective and you'd need to give another dose. So I certainly wouldn't do it under four weeks and I would stretch it out as long as you can to be as near eight weeks as possible unless the guidance changes. Brilliant. And I know we're just going to come on to phase three um, shortly, but one of the questions I think that's been asked, is there a, spe a specified time gap between second dose and booster? Yet, do um, we know that yet? It, they haven't put a, a defined timescale on that because if you, when we come onto it and we describe the sort of stages of it, the people who were probably first in line are the people that had it in January with a booster dose, um, anywhere between four and 12 weeks later, depending on when they had their first dose. So they will be a few months 
Um, certainly the trial, the booster trial, is that got an 84-day, so a 12-week gap between the second dose and the booster dose. Okay, brilliant. I think that was all the questions on second doses. So shall we move on to yeah. phase three? So this week, the phase three proposals were um, published. We'd had some sight of what was being expected. So the autumn booster or the phase three is really split into two parts. So stage one is looking at offering a third vaccine to the most vulnerable. So that is looking at people who are care home residents and the staff, health and social care workers, people over 70 and the clinically extremely vulnerable and those who are immunosuppressed. Then the stage two is people between 50 and 69, those who are in the long-term condition groups that would um, be seen as an increased risk and adult contact, contacts of people who are immunosuppressed. The other important thing in group two is to be pragmatic, anybody who is entitled to a free flu jab would be entitled to a COVID booster. So you know we came into real problems with the um, people with asthma, for example, who would qualify for a flu jab, but not for a COVID jab. So pragmatically, anyone who's entitled to a flu jab is entitled to a COVID booster. Now, one of the questions I keep getting asked is, which vaccine are we gonna use? Now, we don't know yet. It is likely we'll use a number of different vaccines, but the COVID booster trial, which we'll report in um, the end of August, will give us some indication of how effective they are. But certainly it looks like we'll be using Pfizer and we may be using a smaller dose of Pfizer, but that again, the trials will tell us. And then there are a number of others which will come online. There's one called Valneva, um, Novavax, Janssen. Um, so the government have ordered a significant number of different vaccines, which will then feed into it. The recent trial of switching between AstraZeneca and Pfizer demonstrated that not only was it effective, um, having different vaccines, but did give you give your immunity a, a slightly bigger boost. Um, but we do know the side effects are slightly more by switching the vaccines. So I think people are quite comfortable with suggesting that we could give an alternative vaccine. You wouldn't necessarily, if you had two Pfizer's, have to have a third Pfizer. Um, but that will become clearer over the next uh, few weeks. Sorry, so, Nigel, could I just uh, just yeah. ask in there? So. The um, enhanced service focuses mainly, obviously only on COVID, but there is reference in the specification around flu, uh, the flu vaccine. And actually, yeah. like you said, you don't know which vaccine is going to be given yet for COVID. But obviously, if it's Pfizer and they're trying to give the flu as well, we're not good. The practice is going to have real logistical issues with how quickly they take, they get patients through if they've got to wait 15 minutes afterwards. Do you know if the 15 minute... Um, the 15 minute wait for Pfizer is being reviewed and, and if that's likely to change? It's not likely to change. Okay. About one in 200,000 people have anaphylactic reactions. So it has been reconsidered by um, the regulator and I don't think it'll change. Let me just talk about the co-administration because I think that's really quite important as you say. So when, when you look at the autumn program, um, if you look at phase one and two, we are coming towards the end, but the, the aim is to extend the sort of current phase. It won't end at the end of August, it will go on till October. 
And phase three, um, what is being asked is that practices sign up to this by 5 p.m. on the 28th of July. And once you go into the phase three enhanced contract, service contract, which is virtually identical to the previous enhanced service contract, then basically phases one, two, and three combined together. So you would deliver the first and second doses where required, and then you would do the booster program. So um, the reason this is being delivered for the phase three at a practice sign-up at PCN level, as we've done with the vaccination program, is about the logistics. So it is not possible to deliver the regular supply of vaccine to 7,500 practices. So they're still looking at the PCN grouping, although you can change your grouping if you want to. They will deliver it to one site who've got the um, equipment to store that, but there will be then the ability to move some of the vaccine to practices to deliver some of that if they wish to. In an ideal world, it would have been really nice to be able to deliver COVID and flu together, but with practices well-developed flu campaigns, it may not be possible to do that for everyone. But what the suggestion is, is that when you look at um, health and social care workers working in trusts, residents in care homes, the housebound, the homeless and people in other residential settings, it would make sense to deliver the COVID vaccination and the um, flu vaccination at the same time. For all the other people, you may be able to combine them, but you may not be able to, and you may have to do them as two separate programs. And I suspect in some areas, the practices will deliver the through program, and then the COVID vaccination may be delivered at PCN level. And it is now JCVI have advised that there is evidence that uh, administering the two together is uh, appropriate and acceptable. Just quickly about um, funding. So again, it's been made clear that the funding will be the £12.58 item of service fee for each COVID vaccination. And there will be an additional £10 paid for where you're administering a vaccine in a care home setting um, or to housebound patients or to homeless where it's given at a hostel. So uh, that, that has been agreed. Um, there will be some other providers um, so the hospitals are expected to vaccinate their staff and there will be community pharmacies and we will retain some of the large vaccination centres to uh, supplement the provision by community pharmacies and practices. We have asked the question, because I know I'm going to be asked it almost immediately, about the clinical directors of PCNs and um, you know the question is being asked if we're going to carry on delivering this and PCNs are going to have a significant role in it. What about the extension of the payment to clinical directors for additional time? And that question is being asked, but I haven't got an answer for you at the moment. Um, several other things that come out through that. So when you look at the digital and technical bits, we are asking about the point of care system. So what practices don't want is to be delivering um, flu vaccines using their clinical systems and then using Pinnacle to add the um, COVID vaccination. So currently TPP is being used in the prison service to record the COVID vaccination is, is being trialed 
So we are looking to see about the point of care system being rolled out more widely. So there is one system you use to record it. Um, also, it is quite important, particularly as we move through the vaccinations, that you're able to look at the vaccination status of patients. So they're, they're, they are looking through the digital work to be able to share that data. So practices, PCNs can see uh, what patients have had. In terms of work, workforce, recognize the pressure that practices are under and also that you can't just carry on using your existing workforce who are trying to provide normal general practice services. So, you know, using additional workforce, if at all possible, the returning GPs, returning nurses, the volunteers, etc., and the Workforce Bureau will continue um, through the autumn. Um, in terms of estates, then the focus is on delivering this through NHS estates, um, you know, practices or other NHS estates. If you're using non-NHS premises, then there's a value for money criteria, which is probably slightly tighter than it was in phases one or two. And I know some of the places who are delivering through this are having to return their sites because they were delivered through hotels or sports centres or whatever, which are looking to open up and use uh, those services. There's another process that non-NHS sites will need to go through, uh, which yes. is a value for money review. Okay. That's yeah. Useful to know. Um, the, the other bit which has been a real trial in the first um, two phases of this is um, practices being told at the last minute when deliveries are coming and obviously with Pfizer the short shelf life that's better now because it's 28 days rather than five days um, but what we're going to move to is from a push model which is we're told this is when your vaccine's coming sorted out to what's been called a capped pull model and what that means as a system, we will get an allocation and we can pull down the allocation. So practices, stroke PCNs should get a regular supply, which is largely determined by what their needs are, but it won't be an open-ended, you can have exactly what you want because supplies will be limited and which is why it's capped at a system level. So sites can request a volume up to a maximum limit and that should also allow for better alignment between flu vaccination and COVID vaccinations. Just turning to the contract, this is a, um, a slightly strange hybrid as before, which is an NHS enhanced service contract rather than a DES or a LIS. And that's so that if circumstances change, then the contract can be amended by NHS England with agreement uh, with the BMA GPC. So what practices are going to be asked to do is opt in by 5 p.m. on the 28th. Um, as I said before, you can sign up um, as a PCN grouping, but you can change that. The contract will start on the 6th of September and run till the end of January next year. And there will be a collaboration agreement, which is similar to what you had in place before, which talks about working together, sharing records, communication with patients, call recall, sharing staff, designating your site, having a lead contact for emails, having indemnity in place and a template for all of this, if you want to use that, will be provided. So um, I think I've covered most of the major things, Michelle, but happy to answer any questions you have that you think might be of interest. Um, so on page 19 of the Enha Enhanced Service Spec, it talks about future guidance on co-administration. And I'm thinking about obviously with flu, do you have any um, 
any information whether the flu and the um, COVID vaccination um, specifications are going to be put together or are they going to be kept separate or do you not know at this stage? I think it's likely that the, the SOPs will be kept separate, um, which will allow practice again on do their flu vaccine. But when you want to combine them together, it will just be a combination of the two. I mean, the question has been asked whether you um, have a national protocol that covers both. Um, the national protocol is specific for the vaccine that you're giving. So um, I'm not sure at this point in time that it's necessary to do anything for flu. We've got that well worked out in general practice and I wouldn't want to interfere with any of that practices or the experts at delivering that. I think it's quite interesting that you mentioned the national protocol because currently, um, as, as you say, practices work under a PGD for flu. I think there's been lots of discussion this year and it's been very much looked at the PGD and there's some concern that it quite clearly, they, I think it's always said it, but I think this year it's ever more being looked at that whoever, that the whole process of the PGD, so of the giving of the vaccine has to be done by one person. So I think there's some difficulty around if you have maybe a, an admin person or someone else recording the information. And actually it would be much easier if both the COVID and flu were on a national protocol because it then enables you to break down that, that process. So I just wondered if, there, if there's been any discussion about that. I think that it's, it's come to light in the last few weeks around the PGD and that actually the, the one person has to follow the, the process right the way through, including the data entry. Yeah, I think, um, and, you know, obviously with COVID, many places have had an admin person sitting with the clinician and adding the data. Um, uh, I think probably best we'll take that outside this and, and have a look at that. But um, I think many practices have used admin people in the past to do the flu vaccine because it makes it more efficient and more effective. You know, to me, we need to make sure we enter the data safely and accurately and using templates which many have used before so we've preloaded the batch number the expiry date you click on two buttons which are the coded data you've ensured you've got the right patient is the safest way of doing it and it doesn't necessarily need a clinician to do that but um you know i i think there has been you're right there's been a lot more focus on what does a psd really mean what does a pgd really mean and what does the national protocol mean and the national protocol changed in terms of who could draw up and then administer the vaccine and also um, you know we had to work through with the COVID vaccination program the consent um, and, and a number of places are moving to a pre-consent model where you know if you go through the um, questions and people are answering no to everything then you know a clinician can just Point them to go through to the vaccinator if they've got questions and they perhaps need to need to have a discussion a consent discussion with the clinician so i think there are different ways but i think we've probably learned a lot from the first phase uh, first two phases of this program yeah no definitely it'd be good to maybe pick that up outside of the yeah. outside of the podcast and we can maybe get some more information on that I think um, the only other question, which isn't really related to COVID, but to the flu specification, and I don't know if you you'll know the answer, is current or in the last in the enhanced service agreement last year, practices couldn't give flu vaccines to nursing home staff; they could only give it to registered patients. 
And if we're going to look at a system where the COVID vaccine and the flu vaccine are going to be given together in a nursing home, which would make sense, do we know if there's going to be any flexibility or any change to the flu vaccine um, specification to enable practices to be able to give the care home staff the flu vaccine at the same time as giving the COVID vaccine? You're smiling, Nigel. This is obviously um, one you've heard before. No, it's, it, it's um, having worked with you for many years, Michelle, you really are good at identifying some of those key issues and you've identified one, which is a question I've asked, which is um, in the service specification for COVID vaccine, it makes clear that you can vaccinate um, unregistered patients. And as you will know, because you and I discussed it before, the um, community pharmacies don't have a registered list, but they are able to go into a care home and vaccinate everybody, including the carers. Um, if we're going to go into care homes and the, you know, we, we do want the carers to be vaccinated, I think that makes eminent sense. Um, at the moment, the, as far as I'm aware, the flu specification hasn't changed, but I have asked the question as to whether we would be able to, you know, the, the rules would be amended to allow us to do that. And again, perhaps if we pick that up outside the podcast and I will, I will, um, commit to asking that question again with from the national team and see if I can get an answer. And do we have, I don't think we've got really any idea around when the flu vaccination spec is going to be released. I think we're just waiting, no. aren't we? And hopefully it will be shortly. Yeah, I, I'm hoping it will be imminent, but you know, that you just really identified one of the key issues which might be different from previous years. So we're hoping that that will be um, out separately. And I think within each of our areas, the um, CCG stroke integrated care systems are looking to the flu vaccination um, board which I know you were involved in last year is going to start meeting again but but work collaboratively with the COVID vaccination program. Yeah absolutely and um, you're right we're, we're starting the meetings this year again so it'd be good to, to link those two together. Yeah. So I think that's all the questions. Um, I think we've responded to them all. So I hope that everybody's enjoyed this um, and will have found it useful, this podcast. I think things are changing again really quickly around COVID and will be around flu. So I'm wondering, Nigel, whether we could maybe do some more of these in the future as, as more information comes out, because I hope practices will find these really useful. Yeah, very happy to, Michelle. You know, I, I keep thinking that nothing much will change in the next week or so and every week seems to get busier and more things uh, are shared and also become apparent and things are evolving all the time so very happy to come back um, you know whenever you feel it would be useful to. Brilliant thanks Nigel well I hope you've enjoyed this recording if you have any queries please do contact the office um, with these and we'll respond to them as usual thank you very much. Thanks Michelle.